1953, Aldous Huxley participated in a study in which he consumed the psychedelic mescaline. He described his experience and reflected upon its meaning in his classic, The Doors of Perception. I'd like to take a look at some of his observations and thoughts in this episode. What can we learn about the nature of consciousness from altering brain function with these drugs? How should we interpret psychedelic experience? Huxley wrote, quote, Reflecting on my experience, I find myself agreeing with the eminent Cambridge philosopher Dr. C.D. Broad that we should do well to consider much more seriously than we have hitherto been inclined to do the type of theory which Bergson put forward in connection with memory and sense perception. The suggestion is that the function of the brain and ner nervous system and sense organs is, the main, is in the main eliminative and not productive. Each person is at each moment capable of remembering all that has ever happened to him and of perceiving everything that is happening everywhere in the universe. The function of the brain and nervous system is to protect us from being overwhelmed and confused by this mass of largely useless and irrelevant knowledge by shutting out most of what we should otherwise perceive or remember at any moment and leaving only that very small and special selection which is likely to be practically useful. According to such a theory, each one of us potentially is mind at large, but insofar as we are animals, our business is at all costs to survive. To make biological survival possible, mind at large has to be funneled through the reducing valve of the brain and nervous system. What comes out at the other end is a measly trickle of the kind of consciousness which will help us stay alive on the surface of this particular planet. To formulate and express the contents of this reduced awareness, man has invented and endlessly elaborated those symbol systems and implicit philosophies which we call languages. Every individual is at once the beneficiary and the victim of the linguistic tradition into which he has been born. The beneficiary, insomuch as language gives access to the accumulated records of other people's experience. The victim, insofar as it confirms him in the belief that reduced awareness is the only awareness, and as it bedevils his sense of reality so that he is all too apt to take his concepts for data, his words for actual things. That which, in the language of religion, is called this world is the universe of reduced awareness, expressed and, as it were, petrified by language. The various other worlds with which human beings erratically make contact are so many elements in the totality of the awareness belonging to mind at large. Most people, most of the time, know only what comes through the reducing valve and is consecrated as genuinely real by the local language. Certain persons, however, seem to be born with a kind of bypass that circumvents the reducing valve. In others, Temporary bypasses may be acquired either spontaneously or as the result of deliberate spiritual exercises or through hypnosis or by means of drugs. Through these permanent or temporary bypasses there flows not indeed the perception of everything that is happening in the universe, for the bypass does not abolish the reducing valve, which still excludes the total content of mind at large, but something more than and above all something different from the carefully selected utilitarian material which are narrowed individual minds regard as a complete or at least sufficient picture of reality." Unquote. This, I think, is a misunderstanding. It seems to Huxley, as it does to many practitioners of serious contemplative traditions and psychedelics, that the loss of the ego sense, the loss of identity with selfness, demonstrates the oneness with everything. This truly is what such an experience would be like. I'm not denying the experience. I'm not even denying the importance of the experience. It's reality-shaking implications. The discovery that you are not what you think you are, that you are not the construct of self with which you have always assumed identity, 
This is a crucial step forward in understanding, a necessary step toward finding out what you are. But if it's a step, then it's a step toward something, a step in a direction. Letting go of one illusion, we are invited to accept the next one. We are invited into the illusion of the mind at large, as Huxley describes it. He puts forward and entertains the claim that the brain functions as a reducing valve to pare down the all-knowing, all-seeing mind at large to just the relevant details. The mind at large is experience of the whole universe, all perspectives at once. I cannot say for certain whether such a mind at large exists, but it is not human consciousness. We are not one with the objective universe. We are one with our own consciousness. I'll do my best to illustrate this. I'll present it from the first-person perspective. This is what normal experience is like. There are things in the world that exist. I am one of them. I am a human being, a creature of flesh and blood, occupying space, consuming sources of energy to do work, including behavior. I know about a lot of other things in the world, too. I see them and hear them. They are things in an objective sense, and I know that they are present because the human being has sensory organs adapted for the purpose. This is the way it seems, right? What could be controversial about this picture of how we are situated? Well, consciousness is a bit of a problem, obviously. How can it be like something to be this human being? This human animal, no different ultimately from any other system of complex chemistry, nitrogen, oxygen, carbon, hydrogen, the same shit as everything else. I am the all-singing, all-dancing crap of the earth. Okay, how else could our direct experience be characterized? As a neuroscientist and a creative thinker, I have spent a lot of time and effort on this question. Ultimately, neurons communicating with other neurons are the proximate substrate of consciousness as we know it. There is no question that if we stimulate neurons in the somatosensory cortex, we can elicit perfectly real sensations in the associated body parts. This is not brought about by a signal being sent to that part of the body. That part of the body, the hand, let's say, that appendage out there removed by a couple of feet from the cortex is not involved in the experience at all. The whole of the experience of the left hand is an activity of the right somatosensory cortex. I see my hand now, out here in front of my eyes. The hand that I see, out there as it were, is entirely an activity of my occipital cortex in the back of the brain. Furthermore, I can see my hand in my dreams where no signal is arriving from the retina to report upon the world out there. Thus, my hand, the hand that I know, like, well, the back of my hand, is composed of neural activity in the cerebral cortex. The way it looks, the way it feels, the way it moves, all that I experience of it is in the brain. There is no hand located in the brain, though, is there? Of course not. There are only neurons in communication with other neurons. Evidently, neurons communicating with other neurons can produce the entire picture. The look of hands, the feel, the shape, the willful movement. The neural architecture of the functioning thalamocortex achieves all of it. Everything which is self-evident about my left hand is sufficiently accounted for by my thalamocortex. No left hand is necessary to produce everything I know intimately about my own left hand. Phantom limbs are thus not mysterious but to be expected. Are not all of my limbs phantoms when I dream? And which are the real phantoms, the hands I see and feel and manipulate every day, or the objective appendages to which those sensations purportedly refer? Objective hands? I'm not saying they don't exist, I'm just noticing that I have never seen or felt them before. Such things cannot be seen or felt. They can only be inferred. I mean all of this literally. Everything we know about hands is a matter of neuronal communication in the brain. So what happens when we take mescaline and tamper with the workings of the brain? 
As we alter the functional connectivity of thalamocortical networks in measurable ways, at least in principle, we can take these as neural correlates for new kinds of experience. To imagine this experience with a little more clarity, let's look at how Huxley described it. Aldous Huxley experimented with mescaline as a means to explore the nature of the mind. His account of the experience is a classic one, per perhaps because of the rarity of such a tale being recorded and shared widely, or perhaps because his thinking and writing were so captivating and ingenious. Nevertheless, it seems to me that what he describes is relatable to other accounts, such as those of Michael Pollan, with drugs like psilocybin and LSD. Conveniently, Huxley presented a list of the key features of the experience he had. He wrote, quote, what happens to the majority of the few who have taken mescaline under supervision can be summarized as follows. 1. The ability to remember and to think straight is little if at all reduced. Listening to the recordings of my conversation under the influence of the drug, I cannot discover that I was then any stupider than I am at ordinary times. 2. Visual impressions are greatly intensified and the eye recovers some of the perceptual innocence of childhood when the sensum was not immediately and automatically subordinated to the concept. Interest in space is diminished, and interest in time falls almost to zero. 3. Though the intellect remains unimpaired, and though perception is enormously improved, the will suffers a profound change for the worse. The mescaline taker sees no reason for doing anything in particular, and finds most of the causes for which at ordinary times he was prepared to act and suffer profoundly uninteresting. He can't be bothered with them, for the good reason that he has better things to think about. 4. These better things may be experienced as I experience them out there, or in here, or in both worlds, the inner and the outer, simultaneously or successively. That they are better seems to be self-evident to all mescaline takers who come to the drug with a sound liver and an untroubled mind." Unquote. In many places in Huxley's account, he refers to the non-self, the loss of identity with the ego. I'll share a nice example here. Quote, it was odd, of course, that I was not the same as these arms and legs out there, as this wholly objective trunk and neck and even head. It was odd, but soon one got used to it. And anyhow, the body seemed perfectly well able to look after itself. In reality, of course, it always does look after itself. All that the conscious ego can do is to formulate wishes, which are then carried out by forces which it controls very little and understands not at all. When it does anything more, when it tries too hard, for example, when it worries, when it becomes apprehensive about the future, it lowers the effectiveness of those forces and may even cause the devitalized body to fall ill. In my present state, awareness was not referred to as ego. It was, so to speak, on its own. This meant that the physiological intelligence controlling the body was also on its own. For the moment, that interfacing neurotic who in waking hours tries to run the show was blessedly out of the way." Unquote. I believe with that passage we have acquired a sufficient survey of Huxley's account, not to capture the majesty of his musings and the power of his writing, but at least to construct a simulacrum for our purposes of a state of profound psychedelia. Let's do so now. Imagine you have taken a strong dose of mescaline, and having waited a while for the effects to take hold, come to rest in a mind-altered state. You can think perfectly normally and clearly. There is nothing at all woozy or euphoric in the experience. On the contrary, objects around you are brighter and more vivid. The color palette seems to have broadened to include a greater variety. Textures are enhanced. Certain objects seem to vibrate or breathe with intensity. You are spellbound with the beauty of simple things. You can look at one thing admiringly for an indefinite period of time and be drawn continually into the depth of perceiving it. 
your value system has been strongly adjusted, not in the intellectual sense of what is right and what is wrong, but rather in what compels you. You have no interest in doing anything. You are in a state of blissful perception of the world, totally untangled from egotistical concerns. You aren't interested in speaking or moving, eating or drinking, or smoking cigarettes. The thought of such trivialities is lost to you. It's as if the self, which you inhabit day to day, is no longer your problem. You are not a person anymore. You don't even know what it would be like to be a person or why it should be like anything at all. You are just as much the object you are looking at now as you are a person. No more. You are the object of your perception, but not, not just that object, all objects, all things, the totality of the world you are experiencing, it is all you. You are identical to all of it in some. You are one with the whole. Now let's sober up and think this through. There is no great mystery in the fact that people having returned from such an experience will regard it as powerful and meaningful. It could change your life. You've been through something which shows you directly that you are not what you thought you were. You are not your motivations and daily concerns. You are not your arms and legs or your face. You are not your personality or personal narrative. How do you know that? Because when all those things went away, or more accurately, when all of those things became separate from you, you continued to exist in the full sense of being. If listening to me now you doubt this, then I suggest you have never been on the psychedelic trip. It's not what you think. It's not a dream. It's perfectly continuous with normal conscious experience. The conditions have changed, sure, but so have they changed when you take a step outside of your front door. No part of you is made to wonder when you walk outside whether the experience is just as real as when you were in the living room. When you wake up from a dream, you recognize a major shift in continuity. The psychedelic experience is not a dream. You have not slept or undergone a phase transition in consciousness. Huxley felt that in the absence of ego and in the identity with everything he was experiencing, there was support for the idea of the brain as a reducing valve upon the mind at large. He was experiencing something greater than before, more connections between things, more meaning. Does this imply a reduction in brain activity? While evidence shows a reduction in the activity of the default mode network, this is thought to be responsible for the dissolution of the self-construct. Loss of ego sense through meditation or psychedelics has been shown on brain scans to correlate with reduced default mode network function. But what about the greater thalamocortex? Is its functioning reduced? No. Evidence suggests greater functional connectivity, higher integration. The idea of the reducing valve is oversimplistic. These drugs, LSD, DMT, psilocybin, and mescaline, act on a class of serotonin receptors. It's not as if the brain is either turned way up or turned way down. Chemicals that turn up brain activity across the board are going to be extremely neurotoxic. Increase the firing rate across the cortex and you will get seizures. Go the other way, decrease the activity across the brain and you will get drowsiness and then loss of consciousness. A one-dimensional valve mechanism for brain activity does not apply. But fair enough, I don't look to Aldous Huxley for expertise on neuroscience. In any case, something substantial is happening in the brain in accordance with the expression of serotonin receptors and the dose of the drug administered. I want to give a few words to two different observations. The first is of a certain accord with Huxley's thinking on human experience and the necessity for survival. The second concerns his idea of mind at large, by which he means essentially the experiencing of the whole universe and all that it contains. I'll start with observation one. Human consciousness and fitness for the environment. The dynamics of the thalamocortical activity can obviously provide us with a multitude of experiences, sensations, thoughts, emotions, and so on. 
the relationship between environmental conditions and the sensations of the brain uh, produced in response to them is an evolved one. The feeling of boiling water poured over the back of the hand could be a tingling pleasantness, the smell of lilacs or whale sounds. The experience we actually have, given such a stimulus, is one which has been favored by natural selection to produce appropriate behavior and learning, namely a searing hot pain. There is nothing about water at any temperature which objectively or physically entails this pain. Nor is it necessary that the pain should be felt on the hand which receives the stimulus. It could be felt in the back of the neck or the pit of the stomach or between the eyes. Natural selection has favored the referral of the pain to a spatial cortical map. Again, this is very handy, no pun intended. The psychedelic experience shows us a glimpse of a different state of experience, one which is not particularly fit for survival. Never mind procreation. Neural activity is somehow driving the experiences we have, that is certain. The drug has altered the pattern of activity and the experience is thereby made unusual. The upshot for the drug taker is to see that the way things are on a normal basis is not necessarily a representation of the truth of things. That's an important tonic against taking too rigid a position on the relationship between mind and objective reality. I suggest that the mind is directly related to the objective reality of neural causality, but we do not know to what extent the neural causality is a fair arbiter of the environment. One more point worth raising. The psychedelic experience, like Huxley's, is not a complete reordering and reimagining of the mind. The body is still mapped, the retina still supplies data from which the visual field is rendered, one still hears the voices of nearby speakers, one still understands their words and responds sensibly. The brain is still ordered. It is not being scrambled or randomized. It's perfectly intact, as Huxley points out in his book, Mescaline is very much non-toxic. Okay, on to my second observation. Huxley talks about the mind at large, which has direct access to all of the universe. This is what drug takers and the spiritually enlightened have described as oneness. Imagine that you're having the experience we described earlier. Unidentified with the body, there is only all that is available to feel and hear. You are all of it. Not that one mapped representation of the human form, but everything you see and hear and think and feel. This is oneness of identification. Huxley entertains the notion that this is a kind of opening up of the reducing valve, thus more is being experienced. A broader experience is obtained. But I think this notion is way overboard. Rather, if you pay attention, what you are really experiencing, directly experiencing, is that all of the contents of your consciousness are you. These are not the contents of the universe, but the contents of the mind. You are the vessel within which all of this takes meaningful shape. The changes induced by the psychedelic drug have brought about a new perspective upon the contents of mind, enhanced some, and diminished others. This novel experience is just as real, and presumably just as valid. The brain, humming along under normal conditions, with its default mode network fully online, contrives to give you a limited sense of identity. It contrives the illusion that you are but one human body in the midst of all that which is outside of you. But all that you have ever known for every moment of every experience has been a part of you all along. Mm -hmm.